0: Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, your resident Midwestologist, serving up another episode of Take the Last Bite, a show where we chop up Midwest nice, mix it with jello, and call it a salad. Speaking of things that don't make any sense and make you a little queasy... On this episode, I'll be chatting with two incredible advocates in Minnesota about how the landscape of reproductive justice has shifted in the months since the US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Whether you saw it coming from miles away or were suddenly struck by the brute force of the decision, we are all called to some form of mapping and planning around what it means to exist in a post-Roe reality. There's plenty we still don't know about what's next as a result of this decision, but we can make an educated guess that red states are going to be a major battleground for the inevitable surge of state-based policy frenzy we're already witnessing here in the Midwest. For example, in early August, Kansas citizens cast their votes in record-breaking numbers affirming the state's constitutional protection against government regulations on abortion access. Missouri's least favorite supervillain, I mean, Senator, Josh Hawley, had his bigoted beliefs challenged on air this summer during a judicial committee hearing when law professor Kiara Bridges interrupted his transphobic line of questioning by telling him his erasure of trans people among those who can get pregnant leads to violence. And former Missouri politician Claire McCaskill shared with MSNBC days after the SCOTUS decision that prosecutors were already combing through the Missouri law to find all the ways someone who can become pregnant could be criminally charged for doing anything that could prevent the survival of a fetus, and that it would only be a matter of time before people were prosecuted for using birth control, the morning after pill, etc. And unfortunately, that's already happening in our region. A Nebraska teenager and their mother are facing felony charges for allegedly ending a pregnancy and not reporting it. In fact, Facebook provided law enforcement with transcripts of the teenagers' messages where they supposedly talked about the abortion, which are being used as evidence against the teenager. I chat a bit more about this situation on our newly launched TikTok, so I encourage y'all to pop over there and follow us to learn more about all things Midwest and queer, and let me know what you think about this Nebraska situation, because it's it's very complex and layered. The moral of the story is that the next leg of this battle of bodily autonomy will largely play out on a localized level, state by state, city by city, Because one of the keystones of Roe v. Wade was that it was unconstitutional for states to ban abortions. So without the federal protection, state politicians have been given substantial room to enact restrictive regulations on abortion access. Fortunately for all of us, there are some stellar folks who've been deeply engaged in reproductive health, rights, and justice coalition work for some time now, who have resources, guidance, and words of affirmation to lead us into this new post row terrain. I get on the mic with Erin Mae Quaid and Abina Abraham from Gender Justice and Unrestrict Minnesota to talk about how reproductive freedom efforts have been impacted by the SCOTUS decision and what cumulative actions we can all take to make a difference in this messy moment. Grab some pen and paper and prepare to take some notes on this episode of Take the Last Bite. Why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations?
1: When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough.
0: How far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know. We're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. (laughs) If you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, You have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely going to talk about Midwest nice. And if that's, if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. All right, y'all. So I am super jazzed about this conversation. Kind of wish we didn't have to have this conversation in aftermath of, you know, national nonsense. But here we are, super stoked to be chatting with y'all specifically. Um... I like to start off our show with having guests introduce who they are, um, while also answering and sharing a bit about what is your relationship to the Midwest.
1: Um, Thanks for having us on. My name is Abina. I am the Unrestricted Campaign Director. I'm excited to be here today to talk about uh, this exciting topic. Um, I use she, her pronouns and... My relationship to the Midwest is, uh, this is where I'm from. This is home. Uh, I've tried to leave and always find my way back. So I've, you know, come to terms that Minnesota's home, uh, despite the weather. um, I love it here. Everybody, I'm Erin May Quaid. I use she, her pronouns.
2: You can call me Erin. I'm really excited for this conversation as well. And I'm really appreciative of you creating a space for us to Mm -hmm. have it. Um, I'm a born and raised Minnesotan. Uh, lived here my whole life. And my mom is also from Minnesota. My dad came to Minnesota for college, so we're we're a pretty Minnesota family. Um, with accent and you know, leaving the last bite and everything.
0: So Yes, Minnesota commiserating over this weather, which is really cold today. I don't know what it's like for y'all are, but it is a chilly 40-something degrees in Duluth today. Yeah, there's like technically a wind chill
2: that they can factor in today. It's not as cold here in the metro, but it's it's crisp.
0: I'm not ready. I'm not ready. So we are gathered here today um, to <laughs> um, chat about what I feel like everybody in their hamster is chatting about, but we're going to take it to some levels of depth and contextualize it from y'all, too, as folks who are deeply engaged in reproductive justice work. And I want to start with just even talking about that phrase, reproductive justice, and get some insight from y'all about what are we even talking about when we're talking about reproductive justice?
2: Yeah, so reproductive justice is a political and organizing framework that was created by Black women and femmes in the 90s um, at a conference in Chicago. Um, It was, they had attended an international conference actually in Cairo, and Um, had talked about the individual right to plan your family and so when they came together um, they were talking about how reproductive justice is about more than just the right to abortion right Mm -hmm. and so it's it, it analyzes the conditions that are created that allow you to have children not have children raise children you choose to have in safe and sustainable communities and have gender freedom and bodily autonomy and what are the supports That are needed in order to do those things and to make those decisions um and so you know it splices together reproductive justice splices together the words reproductive rights and social justice um but i think you know it it has become a little bit buzzwordy there's been a little bit Mm -hmm. of like concept creep you know we talk sometimes about Mm -hmm. um economic justice versus like economic equality and Mm -hmm. reproductive justice actually is like a very specific movement that was created um, and a framework that was created by Black women and fems and, and continues to be led by Black women and femmes and indigenous people. And, and you know, reproductive justice is something that people of color, indigenous people, trans and LGBT people have been um, doing for a lot longer than the term has been around and the movement's been around, but it does give an analysis and a framework to to
0: that kind of work. That's really helpful. And like, I don't think I knew personally all of that history. And it doesn't surprise me that this, mm-hmm. like most things is like a, secret in plain sight that shouldn't be a hidden history right that like most like most things intersectionality other justice terms and movement work is crafted curated and founded by black women women of color queer folks gee what a surprise
1: (laughs) (laughs) um Mm -hmm. if I can just jump in and add one thing and I think in this moment there's just a little bit of confusion that folks oftentimes think that the reproductive justice movement was created in response to the reproductive rights movement mm. and that is a huge misconception like this was a space that was created to make sure that everyone else that was left out could find a place to organize mm. and a place that you know they could see themselves and where intersectionality was the core and the center like there is there is an importance for a reproductive rights movement and a reproductive justice movement to, to be happening together
0: mm-hmm. and
1: working alongside each other, but they're not like in reaction to each other. Mm. And so I think that's just important to clarify.
0: Where does yeah. some of that confusion come from?
1: Well, the reproductive rights movement has been pretty white mm-hmm. and the reproductive mm-hmm. justice movement has been inclusive. And as Aaron mentioned, you know, was started by... Mm-hmm. Black women and femmes. And so I think in this day and age where everybody wants to operate in a place, like operate from a place that we have all people within our orgs or we, we, we include BIPOC people. I think because of that, like there's confusion on, well, is my org reproductive justice? Is my org reproductive rights? And so I think because of that distinction of this was started by folks of color, like people that are operating under the anti-racist framework sometimes mm. get caught up in the verbiage, mm. and you know can't distinct can't have that distinction.
2: Yeah, oftentimes I'll talk about the reproductive health rights and justice movements because those are all three are really important, right? Our reproductive health, our reproductive rights, and our reproductive justice, and so you know they they do exist alongside and and touch all of those those areas, but um, you know they're it like the ability to to have bodily autonomy is, is big and it is, it touches a lot of parts of our lives. And so it does require a lot of ongoing simultaneous movements to, to achieve that.
0: So then Unrestrict Minnesota would be a reproductive justice organization, right? Is that, cause that, that's the inherent framework that y'all are operating from. And
2: we are a reproductive rights, health and justice coalition that operates a reproductive justice framework, Perfect. um, cause we are not an exclusively, um, Black women-led <laughs> coalition, um, or all of our members are not. So we we say that we are a reproductive health rights and justice coalition and campaign that uses the reproductive justice framework.
0: So in that coalition work and in the in the work of Unrestrict Minnesota, how is the nature of that work? looked in comparison to maybe a more red state, right? Like we're in Minnesota. We know there's a perception that it's inherently more progressive, but there's still some common pillars of cringe and ick that is just ubiquitous across these United States. Um. So like what has been the nature of like Unrestrict's tenure of work um, maybe compared to other states?
2: Yeah. So Unrestrict Minnesota was uh, created three and a half years ago, you know, to do a few different things. One was to support litigation um, against the state of Minnesota to remove a bunch of abortion restrictions from law. You're right, there was this perception that everything was fine in Minnesota. Other states might be passing abortion bans, but everything's fine here. And we had a whole host of laws that were barriers for people accessing abortion care. And so UNRESTRICT's um, mission is to protect, expand, and destigmatize access to abortion care and all reproductive health care in the state of Minnesota. And we do that through public education, litigation and uh, legislation. And so, um, you know, when we started three and a half years ago, it really was under with the understanding that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned and that this issue was going to be decided state by state. And in 1995, um, the Minnesota Supreme Court established that Minnesotans have the right to access abortion care and decide to access abortion care without the government interfering. And despite that decision, there had been a lot of laws put in place that that you know did interfere with those decisions. And so litigation was filed in 2019, um, and that's when our coalition and campaign started as well. And so um, you know we had the opportunity here in Minnesota to be proactive and not reactive, and to utilize the Minnesota Constitution that already had established some pretty significant rights to roll back. Um, some of the harms that had been put into place in you know the early 2000s and that kind of stuff. So um, unlike other states who are maybe doing defensive work uh, or protective work, we were doing proactive work, and that was really a really important thing to be happening in the last three and a half years as we get to this moment we're in a, in a post Roe America.
0: So let let's let's talk about the the key moment you just mentioned, right? So it seems from what you said that this overturning of Roe v. Wade that officially took place the end of June of this year was not seemingly probably a surprise to folks real deep in the reproductive health and or rights and or justice facets of work. With that in mind, what what shifts or changes maybe have happened post the official turning over in SCOTUS decision versus after like what has been the energy um you know I think about and maybe this isn't a comparison but I'm curious if there is one especially since we're in Minnesota I think about the summer of 2020 and the aftermath of George Floyd's murder how organizations doing either anti-racism work or jail bond um work right got a lot of attention in ways that were unprecedented to the point where some of them are like, wow, we've gotten loads of donations in a very short span of time. What what does that mean for our infrastructure? We could never fathom like just like kind of uh-huh. the energy and the rallying around groups and agencies that are doing this type of work. Um one that's one example I think of, of just like how have folks been activated in different ways between the day before and the day after. <laughs> just speaking
1: from, like, the side of donations and support, Mm. like, things, we've expanded our lists and expanded our supporters, both, like, people wanting to volunteer and people um, donating significantly um, at both Unrestricted Minnesota and Gender Justice. Um, We had a rally um, where folks, well, let me step back, we had a vigil the day of the decision, and like there was not a lot of organizing done beforehand to get people to turn out. And we had an amazing turnout of people just wanting to be in community with each other and just like process this moment. Mm-hmm. Then we had a rally a couple weeks after the decision and had a huge, huge turnout of people like being outraged and wanting to like figure out, you know, what are the next steps. Um, In the same rate, I think, you know, just like on the side of now organizing around the election, I think people are a little comfortable here in Minnesota. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, they look at what's happening in neighboring states and are like, well, we just expanded access. You know, we, there's the lawsuit that Unrestrict and partners put forth that, you know, was affirmed by the court. (laughs) And so, you know, we're all good and all rosy, but the reality is, you know, we have Minnesotans who are traveling to other states to Mm -hmm. access care because, Appointments are filling up and we have a really important election before us Mm -hmm. right now, like we need to make sure that we have a legislature that's pro abortion, pro reproductive freedom, so that we can get these restrictions off the books, because it takes one Republican governor in office, and the ability for them to nominate Supreme Court justices for our entire lawsuit to be unraveled, and we're back in a place of you know, having restrictions. And so I think there's a lot of energy and excitement around organizing, but I think there's also still a need to educate people, especially around the election and like what it means in this moment to have had this exciting lawsuit um, and then like still having work to be done. Like we know that we got to continue to expand access. We have to make sure that we have an attorney general that's going to make sure that people are not going to be prosecuted for coming here to access care. And we also know that we need to, like, activate our BIPOC communities because should there be restrictions, we know that those communities will suffer the most. And so we're both excited about the energy, but also wanting people to, like, be laser focused on we're not done. It's not over until it's mm. over and we still got work to do. Um, And so... We're appreciative and grateful for all the support that's been coming through, but also just want to make sure that the people that are new and weren't expecting this moment to happen also know that just because, you know, a few weeks after Roe was struck down, we had an amazing victory here. um, Like there's still there's still more to do.
2: Yeah, I I think just one, I want to add like some historical context to because the analogy that you used about George Floyd's murder, like there were obviously organizations in the state of Minnesota um, and in Minneapolis, that worked to um, combat police violence and to shine a light on it. And I think the the big difference, you know, I think about like the Rodney King um, beating that happened in the '90s. Like that was kind of one of the first ones that was filmed. Certainly. But as organizations across the country kind of sprung up to address that issue, like you didn't know where, and you didn't know when, and you didn't know who. Um, the reproductive rights, health, and justice movement, 100% knew when and where and who. Um, like we had on our calendars, like, you know, June 24th, like that's the day that they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, we had like create, we spent months like creating, um, Facebook ads and, um, things to go out on digital, like just to hit go for that moment. Like the, um, anti-abortion movement has been saying for decades, like we are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. And part of the reason that they stole the Supreme court seat to seat Gorsuch and the reason They you know, shoved Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme court was to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And I think the, um, you know, so like we, so we were like more than ready. And I think when it changed, there's two parts, there's two times when it changed. The first is that when SB eight in Texas, which banned abortion after six weeks, which is about two weeks after people possibly might know that they're pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, Supreme Court allowed that to go into effect. And so that was actually the moment where abortion in every state was legal like the federal right to abortion was gone with them allowing that to go into effect. And so that actually was like, oh, they're going to definitely overturn Roe v. Wade. Um but they but the thing that we were thinking between September 1st, 2021 when SB8 in Texas went into effect and November um 2021 when the oral arguments were is that we thought that they were going to find a way to gut Roe v. Wade without saying it's overturned. We thought they were going to be coy and cute about it. We didn't actually think that they would um, come outright and say it because we knew that there would be such outrage. And then we heard the oral arguments and listening to the judges or the justices ask the questions, we came out of that going, oh no, they're definitely going to overturn it and they're not going to be coy. And so um, this has just been, it's like that Austin Powers scene where it's like that steamroller coming at him, but he's like a mile away and he's like, no. You know, it's, it was like that suck <laughs> forever. That it was going to happen. And so, you know, it was really, really surprising to a lot of people. And, and yeah. that's just like you know, some of my best friends who talk to me every single day, but just don't do this work would keep saying like, they're not going to really do it. Are they and I'm like, no, they definitely are. And they were mm. surprised. Right. And so, um, we were prepared for this moment and Abina mentioned that litigation in Minnesota that removed the abortion restrictions from law just a week after that took three and a half years of forward thinking, knowing we'd come to this moment, knowing that Minnesota was gonna play a really important role in a post-Roe America. And so, um, yeah, that, the, for us, it was just like all systems go, right? The thing has happened. The thing that we've been preparing for, for the last, you know, you know few decades for a lot of movements and organizations has happened. And so now we flip to, how do we get people the services that they need? Mm -hmm. How do they need to go? And how do we get them there? And, and, you know, what do doctors need to know? And what do lawyers need to tell them? And what do funds need to do? So, um, you know, it's been really, really intense, but it, it wasn't, it didn't come out of nowhere for those of us in the movement. Like we knew this was going to happen and, um, Mm -hmm. and have been preparing.
0: Seems like there's really like no win in that positionality, right. To either be someone who's anticipated and been aware because you're immersed in the work, this particular work, or then alternatively to be someone who's some shade of politically unaware, right? Or like politically uninformed, right? Either by choice or just by nature of access or availability of that information to be maybe like completely struck by surprise. And now it's opening kind of this additional frenzy of consideration of like, well, what's next? Like all of it seems It's all on the table, really, is kind of what it feels like based on what you said of this, like, very direct tactic of, like, we're not going to gut it. We're not going to be, like, coy and, like, under the, you know, under the radar about it. Like, we're just gonna, we're just gonna take it, right? So now, now they've shown a certain hand that, like, means everything is fair game and that sucks.
2: Yeah. Well, and let's not forget to the opinion leaked before it
0: actually,
2: when we read that, we were like, okay, so they're definitely gonna do this. But I I also think, you know, part of the reason that this is people have such a visceral reaction to this. I remind people about this all the time is because um, some people feel like their feelings about it are disproportionate to the harm. Like they feel like, why am I having such a, a an intense reaction to this? And it is the first time in this iteration of the country's founding that the Supreme Court has taken a right away. It literally has never happened before. And so like, that is a big, big moment. And people with uteruses are relegated to second-class citizens and that, mm-hmm. and it feels that way. And so I think, you know, even for people who are like, who are up in politics and might like have a political podcast or watch the news every night or, you know, anything like that it it really is like it seems so inconceivable that the supreme court would actually take this step unless you have been like working in this m- movement and seeing how far the anti-abortion movement will go to mm-hmm. assert power and control over people in this country like it it is shocking it is a shocking level of inhumanity but and so like i'm i get it i get why people were surprised and shocked and you know it, no matter where they s- sit on the informed uninformed like sure. It is, it's really
0: shocking. Mm-hmm. I, I think too, and this, this seems to be the case in most movement work, is that white women, white cis women, white cishet women, let me be as precise as possible, at least from what I've seen, you know, especially on social media, we're so very, very shocked And I'm assuming, and can track historical patterns to to realize that like, the shock comes from not not having experienced maybe as direct or as blatant of an attack or a restriction on their own bodily autonomy. You know, I think even even prior to this moment where there's not federal federally recognized protections for, you know, abortion access, like white women were pretty unscathed. And that was not the case for all folks who can become pregnant, right? Access to any kind of health right um and on social media I feel like I've very specifically seen that crowd be so so surprised in ways that it's like where were you during this instance and this instance and this instant like folks taking down their American flags as though that's some big like gotcha moment and I'm like well what about summer of 2020 or fall of 2016 or fall of just like all of these like big nationally recognized moments prior to this moment in which you were not activated in which you were not upset with like your country um i could go on a whole different tangent about that so i won't but I, i feel like this level of surprise feels like it lives in like two not to be binary about it but like two places one where you were blissfully unaware because you were protected up until this moment while others were not as protected or what you shared right just like I don't think there's a question in there. I just like to go on (laughs) tangents.
2: Well, I think, you know, one other thing too that certainly has happened is, um, you know, abortion care is part of pregnancy care. Every person who's pregnant who doesn't have access to the full spectrum of pregnancy care is in danger, right? And so I think one thing that certainly has happened since the decision is the um, very knowable um, but maybe not understood consequences of Roe v Wade being overturned people, you know, suffering, um, through miscarriages that could be ended and have miscarriage management in hospitals, people not having access to PTSD, cancer, or arthritis treatment, because those pills can also be used as medication abortion, right? Like, this is, this is the, you can't neatly contain discrimination and like relegate people to second-class citizenry like neatly. It actually doesn't work like that. And so I think, I think there are people who are surprised, um, like how far it reaches, you know, I like, I'm not a person who would have an unintended pregnancy and therefore I wouldn't need an abortion as if that's the only reason people have abortions or the only place that this touches. And I think that's certainly something, um, you know, again, was knowable, but, that is, I think, certainly some of the surprise I've seen as well is that like, it's, it's not, you mean, it's not just the person who had an unintended pregnancy and went to go get an abortion, mm-hmm. like it affects other people. I think that's really been where some of the surprises too. Mm-hmm.
0: Kind of like the, what is your personal philosophy or kind of your personal morals? And how does that differ from what the legislation actually covers or does not cover?
2: Right. I mean, I think the anti-abortion movement has spent a lot of time painting people who have abortions as quote unquote like those kinds of people right people mm-hmm. who are irresponsible and have unprotected sex and they use abortion as birth control um, which you know that's a whole other topic but you know it's <laughs> very like negative denigrating mm-hmm. um, othering way that we talk about people who have abortions and, you know, some people do have unintended pregnancies and some people don't use protection and, you know, and that some people do have abortions for those reasons. And some people have abortions for other reasons. Right. There's there's myriad reasons why people have abortions. It's as complicated as humans are. And so I just I think that that's one of the ways that the anti-abortion movement has been successful is to tell a whole host of people, like, don't worry, this won't affect you. It's just about those people. This isn't mm-hmm. really about you. It's about those people. And you're not those people. and Come to find out, yeah, They are those people because it's about power and control and creating a dominance over an entire populace of people, regardless of your proximity to privilege or how much of it you have. Like you are those people. That's the point. And and later, right? This is the first step in making other kinds of people. Um, and and it's just kind of chipping away at, at um, you know our humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the messaging is is unfortunately very successful i um exist in a campus space and there's definitely been a surge across the country at college campuses with student organizations and it's like what also it's primarily like cis white men and i'm like what are you doing like how did you like but then to your point right the messaging is so compelling because it's kind of characterizing a particular type of person who is easy to like degrade or think on un- highly of and so then you easily recruit these college students to be part of something that they believe to be very noble and very like kind of compassionate it's like actually like you're impeding a lot <laughs> a lot of people's existence and you don't even know it you don't I mean maybe you do know and you just don't care I don't really know which one's happening um which I feel like segues segues into definitely what um has been complex complicated, messy, um, especially in the last three months, as far as how folks are talking about in the aftermath of the official striking down of Roe v. Wade is technically language, but what is behind the language, right? Of how kind of like specific all of the this has seemed to center around like cis women and a cis white woman experience, which is not new, but has very much amped up in the last few months since, um, the SCOTUS decision. And I think it creates some complexity around how do queer and trans people, especially like AFAB trans and non-binary people engage with something that is so pressing and has so many implications for other types of like health Mm -hmm. and wellness, you know, issues when we have to like shove our way into the conversation Mm -hmm. in most cases.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is one of the really important parts about having, you know, done this work before before we got to this, you know, inflection point is we use gender inclusive language because mm-hmm. otherwise we're being exclusive and we're not talking about everybody who has abortions and we're making sure that, you know, people are really represented and how we talk about this issue, when we talk about this issue, where we talk about this issue. And one thing we found, the research has found, is that young people actually really get it. Um yeah young people understand who this harms most and they understand like who should be at the center of the conversations. I just sat in on a briefing yesterday, actually, that was just some polling about this. And so, you know, um, I think you said the audience of this, of this podcast is like predominantly young people Mm -hmm. possibly. And so they get it. And, um, I think, you know, people are, are also starting to get it, you know, changing people's language and changing, um, like the, the place people go to, like the first thing they think about, you know, and this happens a lot of times when, um, male politicians will be like, well, I have a daughter and I have a wife and I'm like, that's amazing for you. But the reason why this is important is not because that you, like, you know, women, it's because this is a right that everybody should have, you know? And so like, but that's okay. That's where they're starting at. And so I think that's what we're seeing a lot of right now is that as a lot of people get activated, Um, it brings up old messaging and it brings up like Mm -hmm. the last time they engaged with this, my body, my choice, right. Is like a really Mm -hmm. old refrain. um, And it's an old message and it's an old narrative that was used. And so, um, and also like resurged during COVID and around vaccines too. So I think (laughs) that's, I think that is, um, I think that is how like these conversations can be really difficult for trans, non-binary, gender conforming people to enter into is because we're still like frantically trying to get people up to speed, but mm-hmm. just like re-engaged. And we found that people are very, very receptive and understanding it just takes, you know, time for language to permeate and to to be reflected in our movements, which is not, you know, fun at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why we start, you know, when we created Unrestrict Minnesota with the reproductive justice framework, we've always been um there And that's what our messaging and all of our um, work has been geared towards is to be trans-inclusive and to center those most harmed and impacted and to center mm-hmm. the experiences of, you know, people of color and um, people of low incomes, because those are the people who are harmed the most by these laws and people mm-hmm. who traditionally haven't been able to access abortion care, even when it has been quote unquote legal, right? Um, so that is, that's the, the power of our work and the important part of our work too.
0: hmm yeah, just it's so it, it it creates a restlessness in me because I feel like there's so many like narrative overlaps between all of these kind of key components of the you know repro justice framework and the the conversation that's happening right now about what to do in this aftermath and this moment of, of shift um and trans justice work and mm. for there to be kind of just like you know just the average. Person kind of discussing one without the other. It's like, it seems so obvious. It seems so obvious. Like, you know, like queer and trans folks are already navigating, you know, having to drive obscenely long distances to access affirming healthcare. And that is now a narrative that is extra like prominent in this moment where state by state access is different and you may have to travel if you didn't already. Or, you're not allowed to travel because you're not allowed to cross state borders that's you know a whole other piece to this too and was already an issue um thinking about how like taking testosterone can impact organs and if you know not that I want anybody to take this idea if they're listening to it as a you know provocateur but like does that come next? Are they going to come after folks accessing testosterone because it allegedly could impact fertility? I'm going to speak that no, hopefully not, not into existence.
2: You're not, you're not speaking into existence. <laughs> it's already, it's already a thing. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's important for people to know, you know, at gender justice, we, um, do trans and LGBT inclusion work and equity work. And, you know, for the last four years, we've been, um, telling, Telling funders and philanthropy that this is the this is where the anti-abortion movement's going next is tra- attacking trans people in particular, mm-hmm. and they're running the same playbook that they ran on abortion on access to gender affirming care. Right? They've been harassing hospitals and doctors who provide gender affirming care and trying to push it out of mainstream healthcare. They've been, um, you know, trying to basically do conversion therapy through public schools by forcing. This is just happening in Virginia right now. Um, the new guidance. Mm-hmm from mm-hmm. the governor there would force them to, they can only use pronouns for uh, students based on their sex assigned at birth, which I wanna always be snarky. I'm like, oh, can they not use we, us, and I then? Cause Look. like, they're not based on <laughs> <laughs> I never- um, Anyway, so, but like, this is this is the plan, right? It's, it's the same, same playbook, it's just 40 years later. And so, mm-hmm. um, because we're kind of at the beginning of this attack in this way, it's like this legislative, legal, and messaging campaign against trans people, but we know who's running it, and we know their playbook, we actually have the opportunity to not let it get where they got with abortion, and sure. so that um, part of why we do all this work at Gender Justice is we understand gender to be mm-hmm. all of these things, and and they are deeply intertwined, and it's the mm-hmm. same opponent um, right. in all these places, too.
0: Right, and their tactics, like we talked about, are just getting more blunt and jagged so our response would ideally be just as bold and but I don't it's it like I said it just creates this restlessness of like the constellation of all these things are in the same universe and folks are not you know how do we refine that telescope I love an extended metaphor like how do we refine folks's telescope to see all the stars in the sky at the same time (laughs) versus kind of looking at the some of the flashiest ones or noticing when one is a shooting star yeah. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> I love that. So you've kind of alluded to some of this um as far as kind of what what is happening but what what does the current moment inform for what needs to happen next? We kind of talked about it a little bit. Um but like what else? Like what else is important in this moment for folks to be thinking about?
1: Yeah, there's a lot um for what's next. So on the day of um, the Supreme Court striking down row, we uh, put out our leadership agenda, which is a roadmap to what we need to happen here in Minnesota post Roe to keep expanding access. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things in that uh, leadership agenda is actually making sure that we remove all of the restrictions off the books so that if, you know, um, another administration that's uh anti-abortion comes into power they can't just ram stuff through the courts and get rid of mm. the restrictions and so that abortion continues to be a protected right for all Minnesotans and so in order for us to um do that we know that we need to get folks activated and participating in this election um and so we uh, launched our unrestrict Minnesota action, which is a C4, a political arm of, of unrestrict Minnesota, where we are engaging Minnesotans about this election, talking about the importance of participating and not sitting it out. I know that things feel, a little rough for everybody right now, where they're like, you know what, we've been voting, we've been participating, and it just seems like things continue to get worse. But <laughs> we are not just asking people to vote, we're also asking them to join us in making sure that we hold the folks that are elected accountable once they are. Um, elected to getting things done. And we're also reminding folks that it's really important to like, not just look at the legislature alone, but to also look at the governor and lieutenant governor because the governor has the ability to appoint Supreme Court justices and he will have to, he will have to do that in the next term. And so it's important that we don't have Supreme Court justices that, you know, would totally take us back on the progress that we've made. And as I mentioned earlier, we need to make sure that we have an attorney general that's not going to be prosecuting or working with other states to prosecute people that come here to access abortion care. And I know that most people are like, Secretary of State, like what is that? That's just elections. But the Secretary of State's office also does a lot around businesses. And so you want to make sure that uh, should more abortion providers want to open clinics here in Minnesota, that they have a Secretary of State's office that's going to work with them um, to be able to open those clinics. Um, right now, we have a limited amount of clinics. And so mm-hmm. people are not all getting access to care. And then with the lawsuit as well, we know that advanced practice clinicians can now uh, perform abortion care as well. And so we're going to see that there's going to be more providers and therefore we hope that that translates to more clinics. And so we want to have a secretary of state's office that's willing to work with folks. And then most importantly, after the election, we need to show up at the legislature. Like none of the things that I've just laid out would happen unless we are actually like at the Capitol, paying attention, using our voices. And so we will also be engaging people and taking them to the Capitol for lobby days, You know, just sending out updates on what's happening. And so there's so much to do, so much more to do to continue to expand access for everybody.
2: Yeah, and the only other thing that I would add to that too is that um, for as sudden as it felt for Roe to be overturned mm-hmm. and folks will want to see like, what is the thing we can do to suddenly make it go back? or to suddenly fix it. It really isn't going to be that fast. And I I wanna just give historical context, right? So Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973. The anti-abortion movement was actually started not in response to that, but actually as a Republican, the Republican party was looking for a way to coalesce white Southern voters who opposed the integration of public schools around an issue because they thought you know that opposing integration was actually too racist and so they were like we got to find something else and they found abortion right um, i know um they found abortion and so so it's been um like a concerted effort that has cost hundreds of millions of dollars right the creation of the federalist society state legislative races governor's races congress senate presidential races to get to this point and in fact so there were a number of United States Supreme Court decisions that affirmed or upheld or did not overturn Roe v. Wade that have happened since then. So you have Planned Parenthood v. Casey in the 90s. You have Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt in 2016, and then June v. Russo, which actually just came out like a year, 2019, two years ago, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for every one of those Supreme Court decisions, right, the anti-abortion movement was like, why? Like these, one of them came out during President Trump's term. Why did we even vote for you? Why did we vote for you? And you, you know, put Gorsuch on the court, and we still have this really horrible opinion. I just I, I want people to understand that like it really took the anti-abortion movement a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of sustained engagement to get here. And so in order for us to have a future, um, to get to that future of reproductive justice where every person can decide to have children or not have children and raise children in safe and sustainable communities and have gender freedom and bodily autonomy, it's going to take sustained effort and engagement to do that. It's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen um, with the passage of one bill, uh, maybe it could happen next year. I guess if we if we have a really good twenty twenty two election cycle, manifest. Um, yeah, really, let's do it. But I but right, like the the conditions that were created to get us here don't go away with one election. It will take sustained engagement to then create the the future that we want. And so I want people to like enter into this. With a commitment to stay engaged at a level that feels sustainable, um, and it's okay to like shift up, shift down based on based on your capacity and your um, you know everything, but to stay engaged in some way. And at Amnerhar, Minnesota, we try to help you do that to be the place where you can be engaged um, at whatever level and whatever capacity you have because this will take time and it will take our mm-hmm. efforts. But we can do that. We can do hard things. I just don't want us to think that it is um, going to be like tomorrow we fix it. I sometimes I feel like I'm waiting for you know the adults to fix it. I'm like someone's gonna fix this, right? Like you can't just take yeah. away like a fundamental human right and get away with it, can you? But no, like we're the adults, we have to fix it. So that's that's our job.
0: Mm-hmm. I I really value kind of this model of of laying out all these ways to kind of demystify the like electoral politics structure in the state of Minnesota specifically for some of the stuff you talked about, Abina, because we we've had a few guests on the show before either talking about like civic engagement, but in a really queer radical way. Right. But like we had someone talking about a, a voter guide to kind of demystify and talk about like, here's all these different positions. You may not have known what in the world this person's responsibility is, but let me kind of try to break it down for you so that you are, not just avoiding the polls because you don't know who does what. Um, We also had two folks who ran for um, like municipal office. And so like within both of those conversations, you know, the, the sticking point really is like the average citizen not really knowing how to engage or young folks just feeling so exasperated with the electoral politic process that like you just don't. Um, so I think kind of tools like like kind of laying out here's why this this election's important, here's what this person does for you and connecting it to something that folks are very activated around right now in the aftermath of the striking down of Roe v. Wade feels so like so responsive, right? Like in the times where you have to be either reactive or responsive because that's how other folks is that's what the mode other folks are in if you're trying to kind of activate and they're looking for guidance and resources, even if your organization has been very proactive in all of this process, like also engaging folks where they're at, if they're in a reactive um place and kind of flailing. Like here's, here's the, here's the roadmap, here's the guidance.
2: And I think it's, you know, it's always interesting because you have always like, you have to vote. And I think people think to themselves, I do vote. But sure. the reality is, is like half of you don't, because that's the that's the truth in this country. And they count on us not voting, like they count on all of their folks showing up at every municipal, every city and county water conservation election, they count on those folks to pass these policies and these regulations. Um, You know, like the weirdest stuff that you wouldn't even think of, right? Like, yes, voting for president is very important. And yes, voting for, you know, every four years is important. But it's actually like, there's an election every single year, Every November, the first Tuesday in November, there is an election. So, like, just show up your polling place every single November, Um, whether it's your school board, your city council, your county commissioner, your state representative, your state senator, your member of Congress, your U.S. senator, your governor, your lieutenant governor, your state auditor, right? Like, all of these things really do matter at every Mm -hmm. single level. And I think that is, um, like, every single one of them play a role in all of these things so Mm -hmm. really committing we have to show up in those numbers Mm -hmm. because we can we are an undeniable force of numbers we just don't make ourselves an undeniable force at the ballot box always because Mm -hmm. sometimes it feels hard but like they count us out and we like
1: and then we suffer Uh. absolutely and i just want to say to you to folks listening that um we don't expect everybody to know everything when it comes to electoral things because it's complex and Mm -hmm. of course as as Aaron just mentioned like it's intentional that we don't know everything and so we at Understrict Minnesota Action are really excited and open to hosting helping people host little house parties in their communities to talk about this election to like help people map out like how each of these offices is connected to continue is connected to the fight to continue to expand abortion access and so if folks are interested um, they can email us at info at unrestrict and we are more than happy to you know figure out how to pop up in you know a spot in your community and talk to folks and make sure that people have all the information to make informed decisions
0: as they vote this year. Mm-hmm. For us in Duluth a big one is that the St. Louis County Sheriff position is up for the first time in like I forget is it 20 years? same with the Douglas county so that so our neighbors here superior wisconsin is in Douglas county both those sheriff positions in very giant counties have been up and it was really interesting there was a kind of like a panel with the candidates that were on the primary or the yeah the primary ballot and someone asked cuz they had it was this panel was like shortly after june 24th like maybe maybe in fact like a day or two after and someone asked and they're like so what is enforcement going to look like like what are what might we expect and none of them none of them had a good answer. And like, that's a terrifying open question. And so like, again, thinking about how folks connect all of this constellation, like looking at all the stars in the sky at the same time to, to continue kicking my metaphor, Um, you know, folks who are engaged in law enforcement accountability or abolition work, right? Like it, it should be an easy answer in my opinion for someone who has such a high position in a law enforcement agency to be able to answer that question. But we just don't know a whole lot yet. So they don't know a lot yet, which means, I think, more room for mess, right? We see that, what was the Facebook handed over some like Facebook messenger messages from the Nebraska teenager who had been talking about um, an unreported, at-home abortion, I don't know the details, so I may be mischaracterizing that, but, like, you have law enforcement who are going after and using all these, like, old-school surveillance tactics of pulling Facebook messages to be able to enforce, and it's, like, is that codified? Like, are you just making this up as you go because that's dangerous and scary? I don't like that. I don't like not knowing.
2: This is this is the, the problem with um, when the anti-abortion movement makes up laws um, that are <laughs> not rooted in anything, um, it's really hard sometimes. So for example, SB eight in Texas, the way that they got around, you know, row at the time, which was still in effect was um, the, the state was not in charge of enforcing the ban private citizens were. Mm. And so, you know, when you sue the state to say like, Hey, this law is unconstitutional, you sue them because they're in charge of enforcing it. And so you want to sue them to stop them from enforcing that law. But when Texas passed their law, it wasn't The attorney general or the county attorneys or the city prosecutors or whoever who was in charge of prosecuting people for having abortions after six weeks it was private citizens and so that's why the supreme court was like well i don't know what you can do with that i'm sure that if someone had passed a law saying private citizens enforce you know bans against owning guns they would have figured it out really quick but they didn't (laughs) but so and so when when you make up a law like that um then how do you how do you like comply with it, and how do you like sort out the enforcement mechanism of it, and then what do you do? Like, how do you make up a lot to counter that? Because, so mm-hmm. for example, if the st- state of Missouri passes a law that says it is now a felony to travel to the state to any other state to access abortion care, and they come to Minnesota, they have you know, an abortion in Minnesota where it's totally legal. And then Missouri wants to prosecute a doctor in in Minnesota for providing legal care. Like they just make stuff up. And Mm. so then it's like, how do you make a bill to, to like prevent against some sort of made up, Law, Like it's not rooted in jurisprudence. It's not rooted in like a, a kind of law framework. Usually when you write a law, it's like rooted in something like a jurisdiction that you have or, you know, authority that you have and there are, there are criteria for that. And they just like make it up. And so that is where it is get it does get messy. And that's where then it's like the um, the discretion Discretion, of individual, you know, law enforcement officers, there was a woman in Texas who was arrested for having a miscarriage because the officer Mm -hmm. like didn't understand the, you know, so like, these are the things that it does get messy. And that's why taking away people's rights doesn't get neatly contained to just like one group of people. It it trickles to a whole bunch of other things. There's always um, ancillary things that come with it too. And so this isn't Mm -hmm. the end of a whole
0: thing. It's the beginning of a whole thing. Mm -hmm. Discretion is dangerous. By all means, if you have any additional final thoughts, plugs, things that you want to share with folks, please add. Um, But you had mentioned, right, like that this this work, however you define that, right, work TM, Mm -hmm. requires sustained engagement, right? So I'm curious for either of you, what has allowed you or required you um, to sustain your engagement? How do you sustain your engagement in this work? Well, Again, simple actually, questions.
2: Yeah, so simple. I think it's actually easier if I give an example from a different part of work that I don't necessarily do every day because I'm over here handling it in Repro, right? Reproductive mm. Rights, Justice. I'm really deeply concerned about climate collapse. It's Mm -hmm. happening, we're watching it. People in Jackson can't drink their water and people in Texas don't have power and there's a hurricane barreling towards Bermuda. You know, like we're we're witnessing the climate collapse and Puerto Rico has no power and it's horrible. And it's primarily affecting people of color, particularly black people in this country. And so um, I like am super passionate about stopping the climate collapse and about climate justice. But I don't do that work every day. And I actually wouldn't have the capacity to like do the kind of work in climate that I do in repro because this is my job. It's what I get paid to do. And so what I do for climate is I, one, I am subscribed to two email lists of people who give me information. And then they tell me what I need to do to get involved. And it's mm-hmm. like, here's the bill. Here's who you need to email about it. And here's what you say. I show up to their once a year lobby day and I like lobby. And then I read the information that they send out and that like, I think it requires maybe 10 minutes of my time per week Mm -hmm. and then like a few hours per year, right? So I want to give that as an example because you people are passionate about a lot of things. And so, you know, if you are out there like hustling for insert cause, you know, any sort of liberation, any sort of like movement work, and you are like, I'm really passionate about this and I can't, I like can't do more other than like, digest and take a few actions like sign up for the unrestricted minnesota email list because we will we email with purpose we ask you to engage with purpose now if you're a person who was like actually i'm not really engaged in movement work right now and i do have some time resources capacity to give and i want to give it to this like we take volunteers we will help you host a house party we you know we'll we'll bring you in more and so um that is you, you have levels and you just engage at the level that you can. If you have money to give, please give money. If you have time to give, please give your time. Um, if you have, um, you know, knowledge to give or a story to share stories are super important. Um, please share, please share your story with us. Um, these are the things that you can do. And so I just want, I want people to feel like, I don't want people to feel like if they can't give all their time, money, and attention to this and they're not useful, that's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want people to understand that they can be engaged in lots of different ways. It's just the looking away that we can't do anymore.
0: I wrote the phrase micro dosing engagement based on that answer. And like, I think I'm going to stick with that. of just like the small snip- small snippets of things that you are passionate about, but maybe can't live off of, right? Which feels like my deal, right? I work in education at this moment. And I do this work with the Institute to focus on Midwest queer and trans communities in various ways, but there's a lot of other stuff Mm -hmm. that hits me in the sternum and gets my, my, you know, hits me in the gut. And I'm like, I (laughs) want to do it all. We can't do it all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's
2: why we have, that's why it's some people's job to tell, to do it all, to tell you how you can give that little bit of maximize
0: it. -hmm. How do you sustain yourself in the work?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's important to remember that like all of our liberations are tied to each other mm-hmm. and that even though I'm not able to be active in every single movement in our community, that the work that I'm doing in like repro space is impacting the work as Aaron just talked about in climate space. Um, because all of us together, like we all need to do this work together. We all need to talk about our issues together and make sure that like, you know, we're not we're not going against each other so like us talking about repro isn't going against you know the climate movement or you know other things that are happening out in our community and like everything aaron said like small things like signing up for the email list mm-hmm. going to a house party to learn more talking to your neighbors you know sharing resources all of those things are super important and keep us going and like there's you don't like we, you don't know something unless you, you learn about it right mm. and so like we're fortunate to be in this work every single day and know all about the restrictions and what's moving and what's not and so you coming to maybe a zoom community briefing and learning something and taking that back to your neighbor like can spark interest and and ha- and that you know adds another supporter for unrestricted somebody that's going to go with us to the capitol and and mm and you know take action And so the the small little things that you do just sharing a resource talking to each other um, makes a difference and also just remembering that like we're all in this together and like all of us together like no matter what issue we're working on like eventually will lead to our liberation and so you don't have to like do it all in order to to, to get to that to that point but you know stay in your lane and do what you can the, the smallest mm-hmm. thing makes a difference
0: this has been Super affirming and fun. I hope that that is the experience that you have had. Um, I just wanted to give room, if you had any final thoughts or things that we did not cover or share, the floor is yours to add. Otherwise I'm gonna, you know, very gracefully Minnesota goodbye us into um, ending the conversation. Is there anything else you wanna share? Yes, joy
2: is liberation as well. Mm. And I really encourage people to seek, find, create joy. Um, This can be really heavy stuff that we talk about that we do and um and it's serious and i I don't want to undercut that but um the last act of oppression is not death it's despair and despair will lie to you and tell you that there's nothing you can do to change anything so why even try it doesn't matter and that's not true despair is a liar joy is the antidote to despair so cultivate find create joy i really encourage people to do that
0: Mm. thank you Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, Please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgdinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick.